when I bought my first house and came into adulthood, I realized how many things I did not know. And I couldn't imagine, as I called my dad and asked him question after question after question, how he came to the knowledge that he had of all these many things that I seemed to not know. Things like taking care of trees and grass and all kinds of things that I was now responsible for. And what I came to realize over time was that he learned all of those things by tremendous mistakes he had made in the past. And that's actually the only way you come to learn some of those things. I, I remember uh, that I would, on occasion, mow my yard at infrequent times. And I talked to my neighbor, who was, we nicknamed him Gardening Glenn, because his grass was always so green and just spotless, you know. And I remember him telling me, you know, those weeds wouldn't pop up if you'd mow your yard a little more often. So I realized at that point the mistake that I had made was not mowing my yard on a regular basis. We're standing out in our, our or we're looking out in our backyard one night after a storm, and we see that our oak tree that we had planted snapped off at the base and just fell in our backyard. It was a smaller tree, but still pretty well established, and we realized then the mistake that we had made was not sorting out the root ball when it was planted so it just grew around each other and cut off the oxygen supply. All kinds of mistakes that we made early on that we realize now, looking back on it, these tremendous mistakes that we'll never make again, or we hope to never make again. But we, we find that life lessons are often taught through these tremendous mistakes that you make. But actually, when you survey the pages of Scripture, what you find is God does the same thing with his people. Remember in Genesis when God comes to Abraham and he calls him out of the land of Ur and he calls him to a place that he's never been before and he asks him to trust him. Come to a land that I will show you. And he promises him great promises. He doesn't have a child at this point and, and just he and his wife and that's it. And he says, I'm going to give you descendants more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham can't possibly fathom how he, an old man, is actually going to come to inherit this promise he's just told to trust God. Well, here is Abraham, childless. What does he do when he's faced with his own life being threatened? He lies. Not once, twice he lies. To save his own neck, he lies just to save his life. Does he trust yet in the Lord's promise? No. When he's given a child, Isaac, he loves this child. You can imagine being 99 years old, his wife being 90, they have this child. It's, it's the, the first time that he's ever had a descendant, an heir, to actually pass off his possessions to. He loves this child more than anything else. And he's told, go sacrifice it. Go to Mount Moriah and take, God says, Genesis 22, verse 2, you can look it up later. God tells him, go to Mount Moriah and give me your son, your only son, the one you love. Abraham, without blinking, goes to Mount Moriah, takes his son up to the top, 
goes to sacrifice his son, and the Lord holds him back, gives him a ram that's caught in the thicket for sacrifice instead. And he says, I will bless you, I will multiply your offspring, and I will do this. Why? Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What has disappeared from that? The one you love. What Abraham has proven over time is that he has come to trust the Lord. And that he loves the Lord more than he loves even the possessions that he has. Even the son that he has. God actually does this in the pages of Scripture with his children time and again. And here in our passage this morning, he is going to do the same thing with David. We're going to see a tremendous thing that David has actually learned throughout his entire journey with the Lord. But do you remember all the mistakes that the king before him made? All the mistakes that Saul made? If you go back to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, you'll remember that Saul is told not to make a sacrifice, but to wait on the prophet Samuel to get there to consecrate the army before they go into battle. And it comes seven days, and he's supposed to wait seven days, and so he's waiting, and he's looking at his watch, and he sees the army around him leaving, and he, he grows impatient, and he turns, and he goes, I'm just going to make a sacrifice myself. Instead of waiting on Samuel to get there, he doesn't listen, on, listen to the Lord. Well, as soon as Samuel comes up, now he's caught in his sin, and he's convicted, and he tells Samuel what he's done, and, and oh, he has so much lamentation and repentance. And then we go into the next chapter, and he thinks, I know how we're going to win victory over these people is we're going to make a vow. And he makes a rash vow to the killing of his own son. And then in the, in the following chapter, we get into chapter 15, and he's told specifically by Samuel, go into the Amalekites and destroy every single one of them. Lay everything they have to the ground. And instead, again, of listening to the voice of the Lord, what does he do? He takes all of the greatest possessions for himself. Saul has proven time and again that he will not listen to the Lord. And for it, the Lord strips from him the kingdom and he gives it to someone who is after his own heart. And now we get to the story of David. David has been anointed king, but he has not yet taken the throne. And in chapter 24, David is in the cave of En Gedi. He's on the run from Saul. Saul's after him, going to take his life. And David's in the back recesses of his cave in the darkness with his men. And in walks the king of Israel to relieve himself. David's in the back of the cave and his men look at him and they say, The Lord has given the king into your hand. You got him. Go kill him. Our troubles are over. Look at what the Lord has done. And David stealthily sneaks up by him. And first to disgrace him cuts off the corner of his robe. And what happens to David as soon as he reaches out his hand against the Lord's anointed? It says his heart struck him. Wait a minute. What a different reaction David has to unrighteousness than Saul has. Saul is convicted only when the prophet Samuel gets up there. Saul's convicted in the same way your kid's convicted after you catch him reaching in the cookie jar. They're not sorry they did it. They're sorry they got caught, right? But David is not caught by anybody. In fact, everyone around him is telling him to do it. David is struck in the heart. He's caught by God. He's convicted. 
And then in chapter 25, we see David encountering a whole new obstacle. Someone in the nation of Judah that he approached to have provision, Nabal, who is sacrificing and shearing sheep and and, and ready to have this big festival and feed all these people, David approaches him through his men and says, hey, can we have just a little bit of that? We're we're starving. We watched over your people. We didn't kill them. We didn't take any sheep. Is it possible if we could just have a little portion for us and for our men? And Nabal foolishly says, no, rejects them. And so David, in his anger, gets ready to go after Nabal and fight him with everything that he has. And on his way out there, he is intercepted by Nabal's much more astute, much wiser wife, Abigail. She approaches David and she says, here's all the provisions that you need. Don't go and strike this foolish man who is my husband. He's foolish as his name would suggest. Nabal means fool. Don't go kill him. Here's all the provisions you need because, David, you don't want to begin your kingdom this way. You don't want to start off on the throne having killed a man who is guilty of being foolish but not worthy of the death penalty. You don't want to start your kingdom that way. You want to be more righteous. And I want want you to see what David says in response to her in chapter 25, starting in verse 32. Look with me there, 25, 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. What is David saying here in this text? He's recognizing that what has stopped him from going after this foolish man named Nabal was none other than the hand of God working through Abigail. So this is twice now that David has specifically been stopped in his tracks by the Lord God Almighty. But you notice the difference between what, how David responds to God's intervention versus how Saul responds to God's intervention. Saul continues to not listen. And he continues to pursue disobedience and not listen to the voice of God. And yet here is David. When all of us in this room are reading the passage going, yeah, the Lord's given him into your hand. Just go ahead and kill him. And David doesn't. And then he's angry with a person who he has a right to be angry with. He's intercepted by God himself and he says, I'm not going to, you've, you've, you've restrained me. You've held me back from being blood guilty. And now here we get into the final chapter of this scene of restraint from chapter 24 to 26. And David is now a totally different person. He's a totally different person than what we saw in 24 and 25. In 26, he comes across as a crafty veteran, although chapter 26 and chapter 24 mirror each other almost completely, with one notable exception. David is much wiser to the game than he was in 24. 
Look, look at what happens. First, obviously we see in the, in the first couple of verses, the Ziphites come to Saul and tell uh, Saul where David is hiding. And remember in chapter 23, the Ziphites had come to him before and they had said, hey, we know where David is. We're going to hand him over to you. Why don't you come and take him? And Saul said to them, why don't you go back and watch everywhere he goes because that guy is slippery as a wet bar of soap and we can't, we're having a hard time pinning him down. Saul had tried already twice to pin him to the wall with his spear and couldn't do it. And so he tells him, go track his whereabouts and get it exactly, his coming and going. Tell me exactly where he's going. That way we know precisely and so we can kill him. The Ziphites come to him again and they tell him again, this is where he's at. And Saul is desperate and so he picks up and he goes after him to kill him. Now, you remember that the Ziphites, I mean, when you read terms like this, it's very hard to track where all of these places are regionally. But the significance of the Ziphites is that they're from Judah. So what this means is that his own, David's own people are betraying him and handing him over to the king. That, that's the significance here of his own people handing him over to the king. And so David is hiding out in the woods and Saul takes 3,000 of his men. 3,000 of his men and heads after David to try to catch him where he is. And David obviously sees 3,000 man army marching up close to him. And he decides we're going to send out spies and see if this really is Saul. No binoculars, no periscope, no nothing like that. So he sends out spies into the camp and they for sure identify this is Saul and his men and they come uh, and, and come back to him to tell him that's exactly who's there. And notice we get this description of Saul's encampment. Saul is in the middle of the encampment and his, his commander, Abner, is right next to him and around him are the 3,000 men. You think Saul has maybe thought twice about the level of security that is around him by now. I've walked into a cave and this guy cut off the corner of my robe. I'm going to go ahead and put all my people around me. So you, you, you've got Saul in the middle. You've got Abner, who is his commander, and also his uncle standing next to him. And you've got 3,000 men prepared all around him to give him some sort of protection. And so David hatches a plan. Here's what we're going to do. And in this plan, we're actually introduced to some characters that we need to know about. First of which is Abishai. Abishai is actually a nephew of David. It's a, a son of his half-sister, or either his half-sister or his stepsister. But Abishai is his nephew, the son of Zariah, is what it says here in the text. And then we're also introduced to a person by the name of Joab. Joab is Abishai's younger brother. And Joab, let me tell you, is a legend in Israel. Joab is actually going to end up becoming David's right-hand man. And you know those people, you probably know them, maybe some of them are in your family, who are not exactly the most upright people, you know? But if you were ever caught in a dark alley, you would want them by your side. You know that person I'm talking about? Joab is... Uh, is a, I think the right word is rascal, all right? Joab is, is a complex character, and we're going to meet him later on, but they're going to occupy almost all of 2 Samuel, these characters, both Abner, and, uh, Abner Abishai, and, um, and, uh, and Joab. 
And so Joab and Abishai are both his nephews. And so David is hatching up this plan where he's going to go in in the middle of night into the middle of the encampment and just scope it out and see how close they can get. And so David takes Abishai and they move past all the sleeping army and they get all the way up into the middle of the sleeping army. And here's what we're told. Look at verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Does that sound familiar? Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. He's a bad dude. He wants to pin him to the earth. David, why don't you just turn loose and let me do this thing? You notice that's very similar to what David's men told him in the cave. But there is one tremendous exception. Remember before they were in the cave, Saul had come to relieve himself and his men told him, the Lord, the Lord has given your enemy into your hand. Go and strike him. Now what's different here is that David is told by his nephew, let me go and strike him. Let me pin him to the earth and I won't miss, I promise you. And I won't have to do it twice. I'll hit him dead on the first time. The, the change here is that David has plausible deniability. David can allow this murder to occur and yet at the same time keep the blood off of his own hands. They know this is the problem. David has told them this before. David has, when he cut off Saul's robe, he went back to his men after he was struck to his heart and he said, look, I'm not going to do this. I can't reach my hand out against the Lord's anointed. Here, Abishai is offering him a great solution. Let me reach my hand out against the Lord's anointed. Let me take the curse. I'll do it for you. See, David is positioned here with a, a pretty great option. My nephew can kill him and I can keep my hands clean. How does David respond? Look at verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. Notice how David responds like a, a, a crafty veteran who's been going at this for several swings now. He's had an opportunity to kill Saul on many occasions, and he has refused now to take it. First, he was stopped by the Lord from doing it, cut to the heart by conviction from the Lord's Spirit. Then when he was trying to reach out in anger against his fellow brother, his fellow Judite, he was stopped in his tracks by his wife, and he knew then to listen to the Lord. Now, he's positioned with his, his right-hand man standing next to him, saying, I'll do it for you. And David responds, not with a decision to make, or with any kind of pause or thought to it, but with complete and total wisdom. 
And notice that the response is more than even just him being wise and having learned from his mistakes. What exactly has David learned? He's learned to trust the Lord. Look at how he responds in in verse uh, 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. He'll die of old age. Maybe the Lord will just kill him like he did Nabal. Or maybe he'll just live till he's 95 and, and he'll die in his bed. Or maybe he'll go down into battle and he'll perish there. The point is, David is not just trusting that his throne will be given to him, but that the Lord is actually going to do the fighting. See, see David is not relying on the strength of, or the weakness of Saul and knowing that Saul is foolish. He's not looking enviously at the day when he's going to take over the throne. He's resting on the Lord's promise. Just as Abraham does when he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah, now here is David learning the same lesson that he's got to trust the Lord. Then in the midst of all of this, the Lord has brought him into the wilderness. He's running from the hand of Saul, knowing twice that Saul has tried to kill him. And more than that, he's brought his army after him. And yet what he's learned in the process is that he has to trust the Lord. You might say, this is what the Lord has been doing for David all along. And if you open your eyes to the pages of Scripture, you will see God doing this time and again to his people. He continues to bring them on the brink of peril and then ask them, do you trust me? On the brink of elimination and ask them, do you trust me? Whether it's Gideon with 300 men, do you trust me? Or David here, do you trust me? But what you should not miss is verse 12. Look at what it says. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Do you notice something that the Lord has been doing to Saul? The Lord has been putting Saul in very precarious positions, hasn't he? The Lord has caused, the text makes it abundantly clear, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the men so that David could get into the middle of the camp. Now, at the same time he is putting Saul in precarious positions, he is also striking the heart of David so that he won't reach out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Pausing him in his tracks before he kill anybody who is innocent. And then again, causing him to talk to his men and say, No, we shall not reach out our hand against the Lord's anointed. So, at the same time the Lord is bringing Saul close to David, to the brink of disaster, he is causing David to stop in his tracks. Why do you think that is? I don't think we should miss here in the text that even though Saul has continued to ignore the voice of the Lord, the Lord has been abundantly kind to him. Even in the midst of all of his sin, the Lord has been incredibly merciful to him. God's man, David, could have killed him on multiple occasions now. And what does he do instead? Causes him to stop. Strikes his heart. 
gives him pause. The Lord has been incredibly kind to to Saul in spite of Saul's disobedience. Now, then the question comes. In whose hand is Saul better off? Who is Saul's real right-hand man? Is it Abner or is it David? Do you remember this? That there was a point in this story where David was elevated to commander of Saul's armies. You remember this? Saul had appointed him commander of his army, had even given his daughter to David, and had appointed him commander of his army. And then he began to not trust David because David, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Remember? Saul gets really jealous and then that's what starts this whole escapade where he runs him off into the woods. So now Abner, who is Saul's uncle, is watching over Saul. And where's Abner? Well, Abner's supposed to be standing right beside him. But at some point in the watch of the night, Abner sat down, must be next to a tree, and dozed off. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on him too. And David snuck right into the middle of the camp. But in whose hand is Saul better off? Is he better off in David's hand? Or is he better off in Abner's hand? The answer is David. But Saul, for all of his indiscretions, perhaps most of all, he's running the Lord's anointed out of the land. He's cutting off the Lord's anointed from the Lord's people and trusting instead Abner, who falls asleep and and, and lets David perish. So what do we see in this passage? But first of all, that David has learned to trust the Lord. But what we see next is that David continues to righteously trust the Lord. He continues to righteously trust the Lord. So David gets a safe distance away, far enough that they can hear him, but they can't really see him. And so he calls out, and he calls first to Abner. Look at verse 14. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. Now we don't hear Abner's point of view of this, but David tells him, You deserve to die. Why? Because the man to your right or to your left is the Lord's anointed and you didn't see it important enough to actually keep watch over him. So once Saul recognizes that this is David's voice, he speaks up and he asks him, is is that you, David, my son? And David once again appeals to Saul just like he did in the cave in chapter 24 as he does in verse 17. He appeals on the basis of his own actions. Look at verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands. 
So he, he calls to him again like he did in the cave. And he says, look, what evil is on my hands? Why are you coming after me? But more than that, look at what he says about what he's willing to do. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, let my, king, let my lord, the king, hear the words of my servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the, in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Do you understand what David is ready to let happen? Ask yourself, Saul, what is it you're coming after? If it is true that the Lord has stirred up your heart against me, then let me die away from his presence. But if this is men, then let's put this thing to rest. That's essentially what David is, is offering. So determine the reason for your motivations. Why is it that you're coming after me? But do you understand what David is doing? He's leaving again his own judgment up to the Lord. He's done the same thing that he's done with Abishai. Abishai tells him, look, I'll pin him to the earth. And David tells him, no, no, no. We're going to leave his death to the Lord, whether he dies in battle or whether he dies of old age or whether he dies... From other, from other causes, we're going to let, leave that up to the Lord. But now, David is turning around this whole thing on himself. And he's saying, let's let the Lord decide between us. So not only is he content with letting the Lord judge other people, he's now also content with letting the Lord judge himself. Putting his own heart on the line. If this is my fault, then, then someone kill me. It's fine. If the Lord has stirred you up, then, then let me be dead. But if not, let's put it to rest. Now, there's this whole bit here at the end where he is left to be turned over to other gods because he's driven out of the land. And this, this is exactly the point that's the problem here, is that Saul, who is no longer the king on the throne, he is currently alive and he is still occupying the throne, but David is the anointed one. David is the one coming to take the throne. What Saul has done by chasing David away from the promised land is he has, he has basically cut the people off from the, the God that they serve. God's kingdom is set up as, in such a way that God is going to work to his people through his anointed king. So by taking the anointed king and running him out of the promised land, they have essentially cut God's anointed king off from his people. So now, David can no longer have access to his people, and his people can no longer have access to him. Therefore, he cannot lead the Lord's people to the Lord. You understand? So he's been cut off from God himself. Not only that, he's been turned over to foreign countries. His own people are deserting him, like the Ziphites. He's been turned over to other countries where they serve other gods. So in every single way, David has been cut off from his people. And how does David respond? Well, now several chapters in to him being on the run from Saul, he responds in faithful obedience. He gets it. The Lord has actually brought him out into the wilderness for a purpose. 
He didn't anoint him king and then go, you know what, I didn't, I didn't think about what to do with Saul. Huh. What should I do with Saul? No, in fact, he brings Saul to the brink and says, David, here he is, and stops David dead in his tracks. What becomes the reality is that he's brought David into the wilderness for a purpose. And the purpose is to teach him precisely this. David, if you cannot rely on me in these times, how will you ever rely on me when you're sitting on the throne? If you can't rely on me in the wilderness, how will you rely on me in the promised land? If you can't rely on me when you have nothing, how will you ever rely on me when you have everything? It's a trick we tell ourselves, isn't it? The more I have, the better off I'll be. And then we get and we find it's exactly the opposite. The more you have, the more you're prone to trust those things. See, David's in the wilderness for a reason. He's not only trusting the Lord for justice, he's also trusting that because of his uprightness, God will deliver him. Look at verse 23 and 24. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. He doesn't trust Saul to deliver him. He trusts the Lord to deliver him. But why? On the basis of his own righteous action. God, God has taken David on a journey over the last three chapters, and it's taught him that God's kingdom is one where righteousness reigns. God's kingdom is different. Isn't that what Abigail tells him when, he, when she intercepts him in, in the previous chapter? Look, this, your kingdom is different. Now he's realizing that God's kingdom is actually built on righteousness. God's kingdom is one where righteousness reigns. Saul is taken off the throne because he refuses to listen to God. David is being placed on the throne because he's a man after God's own heart, meaning that he does actually listen to God. What he's been taught over these last few chapters is that God's kingdom is one where righteousness reigns. Saul's given, me, given David his word and he, that he won't harm him. And David isn't trusting that he will keep his word. He's trusting the Lord to deliver him. But the Lord is setting a precedent through David that this is the kind of king that God will put on the throne. It's one who rules in righteousness. You get that? But David's not perfect. And he's going to utterly fail soon. Some of the seeds of his failure have already been sown in how many wives he's taken. And it's going to lead to his eventual collapse of his kingdom. But what he's laying down is a foundation for what the children of Israel should come to expect of the kingdom of God. And the king that sits on the throne, it's one where righteousness reigns. And sure enough, even this day, God's requirement for entrance into his kingdom is perfect and total righteousness. 
Jesus is the one. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, the very end of chapter 5, do you remember what he says? You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jesus is laying out for the kingdom of God the very same thing that his great-great-grandfather laid out. Righteousness forms entrance into this kingdom. The problem is, none of us are righteous. That is the bad news that exists when the kingdom of God sits here and the, the gate that's formed over it has a wide open gate. The threshold is wide open. You can walk through it. The one qualification. You must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who's going to walk through? You? Me? Every one of us has to be stopped at the entrance to realize we can't pass through. You see, and, the, and surface level repentance will never do. The requirement for us is that we have to have righteousness of our own. This is precisely what Jesus comes to do, to be a different kind of king. One who says righteousness is required, perfection is required, and you don't have it. Jesus then lives his entire life perfectly without sin to provide for you the righteousness you could never merit on your own. And then instead of taking that righteousness and walking through the gates and leaving us on the other side, he dies in our place and takes all the punishment that we deserve and offers us instead his righteousness so that we can then walk through the gate by grace through faith. You understand? What Jesus is going to provide is something David knows, but he never could provide for his people. Jesus is going to provide the righteousness that's required to enter the kingdom of God. One where righteousness does reign. And yes, the kind of righteousness we need cannot be merited by false repentance. In fact, it's not merited at all. It's by grace. It's by God changing your heart to one that is broken and contrite over your sin. That doesn't seek to hide your sin, but brings it before the Lord and says, This is sin. And for it, I deserve condemnation. I deserve to die. It's a heart that's broken and contrite. It's one that God does not despise. But you understand that in the process of bringing you to grips with your own sin, in bringing you into the wilderness, the Lord is taking you to a place of righteousness, but He's doing it through mistakes. He's doing it through, yes, even your sin. You understand that we don't come to grips with our sin naturally. God is the one that strikes the heart with His Spirit. God is the one that brings conviction for sin. And yes, God is the one that brings you through all of these trials to help you realize, first of all, that you're a sinner in need of redemption. And second, that He is the only one through His righteous King Jesus that can actually provide it. So when you look around at your life, whether it's your health, 
that has slipped, a wandering child that has brought you out into the wilderness. Maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe it's trouble in your marriage. Maybe it's a strained relationship here or there. Every single one of us has been into the wilderness before. We'll be going into the wilderness shortly or just came out the other side. Every single one of us who are following after Christ knows what it's like to be stranded or feel like we're stranded in the wilderness. And what you have to understand is that the wilderness is God's process of bringing His children straight to the foot of the cross where you come to realize you're a sinner in need of redemption, that only God can provide this. And if I want out of the wilderness into the promised land, only God will lead me there. There's no doubt that these trials that we go through have probably revealed to us many areas of sin, probably a number of mistakes that you've made along the way. You didn't get here by chance. There were certainly bad decisions, maybe even sinful choices that put you here. But having secured the righteousness of Christ that comes by grace through faith, do you not understand that it's God who works in and through your trials and your sins to bring about righteousness in you? So then the question is, as you face this trial, you, have, you should have this nagging question in the back of your mind, do you trust me? Here you are in the middle of the wilderness, seeing trials on all sides. Do you trust Him? This is the position David comes to with Abishai at his right-hand side. What does David say? I don't know how the Lord's going to get me out of this, but I'm going to trust that He's going to do it. Rather than take this into my own hands, Rather than create salvation by my own hands, your fretting, your worrying, your anger, your bitterness, all the grudges that you want to hold on to, all it's trying to do is produce salvation for you by your own hands. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but it's not going to be by those means. Instead, it's going to be waiting on the Lord to deliver you from all of it. Do you trust Him? His kingdom is governed by righteousness. And if you're a follower of Christ, He is taking you there by His grace. He is bringing you from the wilderness to the promised land. Strictly by His grace, do you trust Him? Have you learned the lesson already? Do you trust Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know there are many in this room who are in fear who are in turmoil, who are even in the midst of despair at this very moment. 
who are very tempted to lean on their own strength, their own cunning, maybe the, their own anger, their own wisdom, to navigate around these situations. Whether it be by seeking revenge, maybe it's holding a grudge, Maybe it's treating someone else with the same kind of contempt that they feel. Maybe it's exiling someone in silence, not talking to them at all. Because they think by those means they will have rescue. I pray that you would break that in them. That you would bring them instead to the foot of the cross to repent of their own sin, the bitterness and the anger and vengeance that they're holding on to and instead turn those over to you and operate in righteousness, in kindness, in love, in patience toward anyone that's around them. Lord, we pray that we, even as a church body, would see the foolishness of acting sinfully toward our brothers and sisters, toward those outside the body. That instead, we would treat others with grace and kindness and leave all of the vengeance to you, all of the payback to you, all of the judgment to you that we would trust you and then we would continue to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.